ever wondered about the spiritual significance of the power of prophecy and end times? Beloved saints, today I want to show you how the power of prophecy and that powerful gift of the Holy Spirit given to the church on the day of Pentecost can actually affect our lives in the future. Hi, I'm Dr. Michelle Corral, and I want to invite you today to our podcast, Day of Destiny. But before we get started on Day of Destiny, I want to invite you to our special website just for our Day of Destiny friends and partners. And that is, you can go to mydayofdestiny.com website and you can download all my Day of Destiny or all the Day of Destiny podcast from the past. But now today, let's get started with today's word that I believe is going to change your life. So we're going to begin today with a prayer and I am praying today that God will touch you and that the anointing and the attributes of prophecy will be released in your life. You know, beloved saints, the Bible teaches us in Revelation chapter 19, verse 10, part B of the verse, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So often we have wondered, what does that mean? The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Today, we're going to look at some of the aspects of God's word that will help us understand the power of prophecy, its place in the church and end times. Let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, I ask you today to touch my brothers and sisters. God, I ask you today that there will be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, such as we have never experienced before. We pray for those, Lord God, that are longing to walk in the anointing, for those who want a new anointing on their life. And I release today through this word, the same thing that happened in the book of Acts, that the Holy Spirit fell on them that heard the word. I pray today that just as Paul preached in Acts, the Bible tells us in the 14th chapter that when he spoke, Father God, that he discerned the man who was a paralytic have the faith to be healed. And it was because he heard the word of God. Lord, I release the anointing of your word into this uh, into this podcast. And I ask you today to pour out your spirit on every person that's listening to it in Jesus mighty name. Father God, let the attributes of prophecy be released in our lives. For Jesus sake, we pray. And everyone said, amen and amen. amen. Now, beloved saints, today, uh, I want to I want to, to open the Bible. Let's open our Bibles, please, to our beginning text today. As we look at Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 4, which will begin our understanding of the power of prophecy and its place in the end time church. Let's look at the word of God. The Bible says, Now there were at the church at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, such as Barnabas and 
and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and, uh, and Manian, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetric, and Saul. And as they ministered unto the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and sent them away. Now, first of all, I want you to see something extremely spiritually significant that we need to watch when we're talking about the power of prophecy. Because why Luke is bringing this out and because he considers it so spiritually significant that he mentions it twice in two and four verses. And that is that the Bible says when they ministered and they ministered unto the Lord and they fasted. And again, after the prophetic word came forth, before they acted on that prophetic word. And it is so important that when we hear a prophetic word that comes forth from the Holy Spirit, such as the word that came forth from all of the prophets in Acts chapter 13, it is so important that we judge the prophecy properly. And judging the prophecy properly is not just saying, is this of God or not? Obviously, in this case, because of those that delivered the prophecy, those men who had been teaching for over a year, Saul and Barnabas and others who had obtained tremendous reputation through honor, through uh, godly lives and through being faithful such as Barnabas, who could be completely trusted by the Spirit of God. Why? Because Barnabas had already earned a tremendous reputation, not by fame, not by fortune, not the way beloved saints oftentimes in our modern Christian culture that we receive reputation. But in the early church, beloved, those who received great reputation were those of tremendous honor who were known for their godly character and also for their giving, for their sacrificial lifestyles and for their lives of agape, for their lives of pouring out one to another. And certainly if we were to look at the early church, Barnabas was one of those who the book of Acts elaborates upon in the fourth chapter and gives us the credentials of his calling. Before we even meet Barnabas, before the scripture goes into documents, in detail to tell us about Barnabas and his selfless lifestyle, the scripture and tells us about the tremendous gifts that he is a giving to the body of Christ and how he operated in prophecy. We must understand and was sent also, excuse me, to the mission on the Gentiles with Paul. We must see that scripture has given us the credentials of his calling as scripture always does. When scripture introduces any person that is going to take a front and center, center platform for the saints of God, we will always see a resume. And that resume sometimes can be a one-liner or sometimes that resume can go into documented detail. In this case, we see that in the book of Acts, scripture has gone out of its way to give us these credentials for Barnabas's calling. And those credentials were credentials of unbelievable agape and phileos operating in his life. Let's just look at that for a moment. 
before we go into further detail here, looking, beloved saints, at Acts chapter 4, which is so very important to the background of how the Spirit of God was moving in the early church. At Acts chapter 4, looking at verse 32, and the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and one soul. Very important, especially for what we're about to share today. Were of one heart and one soul. Neither did any of them. Um that possessed the things which he possessed say that they were his own, but each held all things in common. What is this? Holding all things in common. This word common is the word koinonia. So we need to see the biblical New Testament reference of koinonia is that of which has to do with distributing to the necessity of the saints as Romans chapter 12 teaches us and using what is the uh, Hebrew, if you will, virtue called Knesset Orkin, which is hospitality. Hospitality is not only serving cookies at a fellowship dinner, although that is extremely important, but using hospitality meant that one would open their home and refresh the saints, refresh those that have been uh, traveling or refreshing the bonds of prisoners or whatever the case may be. Um, using hospitality meant that one would uh, be able to greet their brethren and welcome them into their homes and make sure that they were taken care of, warmed and fed. This is a, uh, a Hebrew biblical virtue that is highly prized throughout the scriptures. And Barnabas was one that demonstrated this hospitality. And we can see that in the New Testament scriptures, since the believers at that time, up to the time of, uh, of uh, actually up to the time of Acts chapter 11, the Bible tells us that the word of God was preached to Jews only, even though uh, Cornelius and his family had already received baptism in the spirit. The scripture tells us here, in Acts chapter 11, the verse 19, the last line says, and uh, the, uh, uh, preaching the word to none but Jews only. So I want you to understand that this whole concept of using hospitality contributed to the real meaning of koinonia. So this is where we get the New Testament concept of koinonia, which is an action of the spirit. It cannot be some kind of social structure or some kind of club that we belong to in the church that we called koinonia, even though those are very essentially necessary for us to be able to meet one another and love one another and get to know one another. But the deeper meaning of koinonia comes from the Holy Spirit and it comes through self-sacrifice. It comes through the action of both words in the Greek language of using love. It comes from agape, which is self-sacrificing love that has no conditions behind it. And it also comes from phileos. Phileos is the affection in the body of Christ. Jesus commands his disciples to love one another with agape. But when he spoke to Peter, he used both words, phileos 
and agape. And we are commanded in the New Testament scriptures by Paul, not only to use agape, which we see in Ephesians chapter five, verse one, but we are also to use phileos. This is why the Bible says to be kindly affectioned one to another. And the Bible says to distributing to the necessity of the saints using hospitality. And we certainly see this in Acts chapter four, because this contributed to the outpouring of the spirit. Fulfill ye my joy, Paul said in Philippians chapter two, that you be like-minded having the same love. Uh, And this is why it is so very important. The Bible says here in verse 30, that after they held all things in common and with great power gave ye the apostles witness of the resurrection. Now watch this. Neither was there any among them that laughed for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prizes of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles feet and distribution was made to every man according as he had need. Dr. Corral, why are you sharing this? What in the world does this have to do with us today? Is God telling me to sell my house? I want you to understand something. Beloved, I'm going to show you the spiritual temperature of the early church. We need to look at it. Why? Because we are going to see as we look in prophetic retrospect at the church and extract its prophetic meaning in our lives today. So therefore, when the Bible is telling us these incredible acts done by many leaders in the early church, many believers were selling their homes and bringing the price of their homes and their lands for the distribution of one another. Then we see also that a certain Hoses, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite from the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. These are the credentials that actually give Barnabas reputation in the sight of the believers, not just fame and fortune. No, these, uh, the early church qualified leadership by honest report, full of the Holy ghost and wisdom. And what greater wisdom can a believer had than have than to share agape one with another. So we are seeing beloved saints that the scripture is showing us here that these were legitimate leaders in the church at Antioch. And we are seeing that Antioch within itself has gained itself tremendous reputation. And this is something that we need to look at. Now, to take a little spiritual sidebar here, notice Luke, who is the author of Acts, is going to tell us that they fasted. They ministered to the Lord and they fasted. And the Holy Ghost said, separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the mission whereto I have called them. Then we see again, and when they fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and sent them away. Beloved, we can't change the scripture. We cannot adjust the scripture to our cultural context. Whether or not it's politically correct, I'm going to say that fasting is very much a part of the prophetic lifestyle. And Paul brings this out, excuse me, Luke brings this out 
about not only Paul, but also Luke. And we see this here particularly mentioned twice in Acts. And we see that as a result of the saints of God and the leadership fasting and praying and seeking God for a word, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit simultaneously brought out his divine plan and it was made known to the saints of God at Antioch that Saul and Barnabas were chosen for something beyond what they could even ask or think. Now, I want you to see that this is not the only place that Luke lends to us the strong importance of fasting and prayer that qualifies one uh, to be in a place of being able to be spiritually sensitized to hear God in a level that is powerful. We don't fast to get in good with God. We already are made the righteousness of God in Christ. And we don't, we don't fast to earn brownie points. We don't fast uh, with the religious spirits, quote unquote. That is a 21st century slang. We don't fast for the reasons so that God will love us more or that God will do something uh, uh, for us that he has not already done in Christ. But we must understand it has always been the pattern. Let's not change the Bible. It has always been the pattern throughout the New Testament scriptures that we see, beginning with Anna the prophetess, we see that the scripture is actually going to lend more time to qualify Anna in her prophetic office than it gives us concerning Anna's message. Let's look just for a moment. Why is Luke doing this? Why is Luke spending so much time in his writings, both in the book of Acts and also beloved saints? Uh, in his gospel. Let's look at Acts chapter two. I want us to see this, beloved saints. It's so very important. If you're with me, say amen. So let's look just for a moment at Acts chapter two, beloved saints. The Bible says in verse 36, and the Bible says, and there was one Anna, a prophetess, a daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. And she was of great age and she lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. The Bible says, in verse 37, and she was a widow of about fourscore years and departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayer night and day. And here we see, and she coming in at that instance, gave thanks uh, unto the Lord and spake of him to all. She became an evangelist. She became a prophetess and she also became an evangelist. She began to speak to all looking for the redemption of Israel. Now, beloved saints, we have it in the mouth of two or three witnesses, not to mention all the other places where we see the spiritual significance of prayer and fasting. Why do we do this? Well, first of all, we are 
going to maximize the grace of God. And I don't know about you, but I want to come up to those places to hear things from the Lord that he wants to reveal. And there are forms of spiritual warfare. And there is a place in God where we become so separated unto him for a season that we become during that time of fasting, that vessel of the Holy Spirit to be able to hear from heaven, his download and his revelation that he wants to give to us for his church and also for our personal lives. And this is why uh, Luke is emphasizing to us, not only Anna and not only Barnabas, not only Saul, not only the prophets that were at Jerusalem, but this, or excuse me, at Antioch, this was a lifestyle for the believers. Now, beloved saints, I want you to see continuing in the context. The question arises, why? Um, what is going on in Antioch? Why is all of this happening in Antioch? We need to see that Antioch actually was what we might call in modern times a prophetic hub. It was a place where uh, the prophets were gathered together, but believers, uh, the believers in Antioch had a different fabric. And I want to tell you why they had a different fabric. They had the type of fabric that was able to handle prophecy that was so phenomenal that they knew how to handle the prophecy. You see, let me just share with you. There are words that are going to be coming to various congregations in the last days. And God, it does not want his church to be in the dark about what is coming. He never ordained that his church would be in oblivion for what is coming on the scene. He has made made provision and I will prove it to you from God's word how it is the will of God that the church be spiritually astute to the point that we are going to be able to handle the level of prophecy that God wants to deposit in the church to give us the warnings and to give us the wisdom. I want to say this, that warnings and wisdom go together. When I say warnings, I'm not talking about just doom. I'm talking about God's mercy in causing the church to be preserved powerfully powerfully and providentially from many things that are about to come on the earth. And I want you to understand, he's not going to be able to deliver the word that he has ordained uh, to into bodies of believers that are still on pablum. He is not going to be able to deliver the level of word that he wants to deliver to the 
the church to those who are not spiritually mature and have developed at the rate God wants them to develop. For at the time we ought to be teachers. We have need that one would teach us again the first oracles of the faith. So it is so important that strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age. So what is going to constitute to the believer? That the believer has come to a point that the believer is now full age is that the believer is on meat and no longer on milk. And you might say, Dr. Corral, how do we know if we're on meat or we're on milk? Well, I will tell you if all we are getting is doctrines of baptisms, laying on of hands and resurrection of the dead, then child of God, we need to move up in the things of God. God has ordained that you would be fed with meat so that you might be able to hear God speaking to you so that you don't have to run to a prophet every five minutes when you want to know what the will of God is. However, he also wants the church in that level of spiritual maturity so that he can do what he did in Antioch to the believers. So that the believers that are like at the church at Antioch would be able to handle the level of prophecy that God wants to deliver into the church at the last days and to be able to judge it with wisdom and be able to act upon it. You see, judging prophecy is not only seeing is it of God or not, but we must also know and one of the ways that we judge prophecy is who is it coming from? Uh, It is so important. Uh, This was important to the early church. This is why the Bible made sure that those that were selected for position were men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. Integrity has everything to do with it. This is why we need to live lives that are beyond reproach. And this is our calling. We need to accept the grace of God that you might be harmless and blameless sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And the Bible has said, you see, this blamelessness that is ours in Christ because we've been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Let us appropriate it. Let us walk in it. All you have to do is claim it and walk in it. You don't have to use your own righteousness to become blameless before God. All you have to do is sincerely ask God, Lord, cover that, that thing that I did. I fully acknowledge I was off. I fully acknowledge that I was a little rough with that person, or I hurt that person's feelings, or I was prideful, or I took the glory away from Jesus, or I didn't take five minutes out of my busy schedule to, uh, to hear somebody who was really in need, or Lord, that I was aloof or that I was uncaring with a fellow believer. And I was not using koinonia, that love of God that shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. And so this is why, beloved saints, it is so important, beloved, that we walk in love. And if we're walking in love, then there is no occasion of stumbling in us, according to 1 John chapter 2, verse 10. And we also need to know, beloved saints, that we can access the righteousness of 
God in Christ. But this is not a license to go around and to hurt people or to walk out of God's will. This it grace gives us the ability to live beyond reproach. This grace gives us the be- ability to be like Jesus. And so the credentials of one's calling is extremely important. And this is why wisdom and experience is so important. And let us look now that we are seeing that this level of word, not only the word that the Holy Ghost spoke to the church at Antioch, notice what the Bible gives us a preface to this prophecy before it is given, that the Bible says at this point, the word of God was preached to Jews only, but now they're going to get a go ahead, a green light from God, not from man, from the Holy Ghost himself, go to the Gentiles. And this was the sending forth of Saul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. And we ought to praise God because had that church in Antioch not been fasting and praying and seeking God, and had they not been prepared for the Holy Ghost downloads that they were going to get to change the world. And I'm going to share with you another one, then you and I perhaps would not even be believers today. It is because of the boldness of Saul and Barnabas who were willing to be politically incorrect, who were willing to risk their lives and lay down their necks and go to the Gentiles, do something that was absolutely against their culture and against the oral Torah, that even um, it was written in the oral Torah, not the written one, but in the rabbinic Torah in the um, laws of uh, Rabbanon, as we say in Hebrew, that were considered as, as just as inspired as the written Torah in the first century. That if anyone eats with a Jew or a non-Jew or even goes under their roof, they're breaking a commandment. But you see, God had already revealed this to Peter. And now, Peter, we don't have any evidence that Gentiles were being evangelized after Cornelius, but because we know that Peter stepped out in faith and began uh, to, to speak to them. And when he spoke to them, the Holy Ghost fell on them and he went under the roof of a Gentile, which was something that was not allowed. But now we are going to see that the Holy Ghost is sending the Jews out to very devout Jews. The Bible tells us that Barnabas in Acts chapter four was a very devout Jew. He was an Orthodox Jew, but he is willing to go against what is politically incorrect. And he is going to go and evangelize. He is going to go to the Gentiles and we need to praise God for the Holy Spirit and for his invasion in the church at Antioch, because they were believers who lived on the prophetic word. They were believers that trusted the Holy Ghost to speak and direct them. Now let's go back in the history to uh, what this church of Antioch was really like. Why? Because it was in Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. And it is so important for us to understand, oh my goodness, we are going to see that the church at Antioch spared the believers from what was coming on the world. I want you to understand God can download prophecy into your life and God can download it in the 
body. You see, it's not just little individuals who are going to be getting prophecies. God wants to download it into a body. The body of Christ is anointed. Every member of the body is anointed. And when a word like was given in Antioch is given, the Holy Spirit is looking for a body that's able to contain such a prophecy, that's able to discern it correctly and put it into action. Let's look at the word of God. Looking, beloved saints, at the book of Acts, let's go ahead and go to Acts 11, since we have already begun in Acts 13. Let's backtrack. And let us begin with verse 19. The Bible says, Now there were... Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenice and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to Jews only. Now, beloved saints, I want you to understand what's happening here. I want you to understand that the persecution of Stephen was a very great persecution. And if we were to look at all of the biblical evidence that is showing us concerning the persecution. First of all, I'm just going to briefly elaborate on the persecution of Stephen. We cannot even begin to fathom within our own selves how God used the martyrdom of Stephen for his glory. I want you to see that this brother Stephen, who was 29 years old, affected the whole world with his martyrdom. And he was such a devout believer. He loved Jesus so much that he was used for the glory of God, not only for Saul's conversion, but for something that was absolutely necessary for the preservation of the entire church. Because after Stephen's martyrdom came a great persecution and it was so severe that it scattered believers all over out of Jerusalem into the areas of the Middle East. And this is something that was essential, not only for the witness and not only for the ongoing work of evangelism, but to get the church ready to get out of Jerusalem. Why? Because Jerusalem was going to be plundered by the Romans. Jerusalem was going to become an ash heap. Jerusalem was going to become flattened with Roman vengeance because the false messiahs that were rising up exactly as Jesus had prophesied, exactly as Jesus had said. You know, beloved, if anyone that is listening does not believe Jesus is the messiah, if anything proves his messiahship. My dear friend, you are going to have to confront the fact that Jesus of Nazareth foretold the destruction of Jerusalem and he foretold it for his Talmudim, his disciples to be spared from the 
scourge of Titus and later for the scourge of, of the Roman emperor Hadrian, who's going to finish Jerusalem off. So we see campaigns beginning with Vespasian, who was Titus's father, who later left the campaign and he went to Rome to become Caesar. And then we see his son Titus launching an attack against Jerusalem because of the uprisings and the rebellions. Because you see, beloved saints, let me just explain it to you before I tell you all the various persecutions that came about at the scattering of Stephen. I want you to see that there were many false messiahs. And why is this so important? This is so important for us to know because Jesus prophesied it. So let's go. Let's keep our fingers here for a moment in uh, uh, Acts chapter 11. But we are going to see, beloved saints, uh, let's go over very quickly to Luke. And we're going to look at Luke's gospel, uh, the 21st chapter, and we are going to prove to you the messiahship of Yeshua HaMashiach. And we're going to see there's no way it's written down. History has proven it. And there is absolutely no way that what he prophesied uh, history came to pass. And so no one can say that uh, what is being spoken here was fabricated because Jesus being the Messiah has already given heads up to his disciples about what was going to happen in Jerusalem. Let's look at the word of God. The Bible tells us beginning with the destruction of Jerusalem, Luke chapter 21, verse five, and some, and as some spake of the temple, how good it was and how it was adorned with goodly stones and gifts. And he's, and, and he said, the Bible says, uh, these people were coming up to Jesus speaking about how beautiful the temple was. And indeed it was verse six. And he said, as for these things, which you behold, the days will come when there will not be one stone left upon another, but all will be thrown down. And they asked him saying, master, but when will the signs of these things be? What sign will there be that these things shall come to pass? Now, Matthew integrates the coming of Christ in with the destruction of the temple. Why does Matthew do this? and not Luke. Because first of all, I want you to understand in the initial speaking of what these things were, began with Jesus giving signs before the destruction of the temple. Because in the mind of the Jew, especially in the first century, but all Jews, the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash, the destruction of the temple is the end of the world. And we must understand that. Why? Because it is as if God's presence has lifted off the earth. Now, beloved saints, I want you to see uh, what Jesus is saying. So they asked Jesus completely in the context, looking at verse seven, and they asked him saying, but master, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of these things when they shall come to pass? And Jesus said, take heed that you be not deceived for many will come in my name saying, I am Christ. And the time draws near, but 
do not go after them. Why is Jesus saying this? Because in the first century, there was an addiction among the people to messiahs. They were addicted to uprisings. I want you to understand that the the century, the first century was one of the most controversial times in Hebrew history. And we see there were many self-appointed messiahs, all being leaders of rebellions. For example, let's look at Acts chapter 5, verses 34 through 39. So we have the scriptural reference on this. Acts chapter 5, verses 34 through 39 is going to be quoted after the resurrection of our Lord. Remember, Jesus rose. And on the 40th day after he rose, the book of Acts begins. So we need to understand that this is a post-resurrection statement. So no one can say that this was uh, during the time when Jesus was alive. Although what is being said dates back to the time when Jesus was alive. Because we have ongoing individuals that proclaim themselves to be messiahs and how they uh, establish their quote-unquote messiahship is by rebelling against Rome. So let us look. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 5, let's go to that for our reference just really quickly. Acts chapter 5 is Gamaliel, who is going to spare Peter and John from being imprisoned again. And here we see um, they are arrested and the uh, angel of the Lord releases them out and they are again found in the temple and they're brought back to the council again and the people who arrested them are dumbfounded and they are brought before the Sanhedrin and the Bible says in verse 34 and there stood up one of the council of Pharisee named Gamaliel where have we heard Gamaliel before Gamaliel was the grandson of Hillel and he was the primary teacher of Paul the Apostle. And there stood up one in the council a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law. And he had, and he was in reputation among all the people. And he commanded to put the apostles forth for a little space. In other words, take them out of the room. We're going to discuss this issue without them there. For the, and, and he continues to say, and he said to them, you men of Israel, take heed to yourselves for what you intend to do as touching these men. Don't do anything hastily. Verse 36, for before these days rose, Thutius, boasting himself to be somebody, in other words, a false messiah, to whom a number of men went about 400, joined themselves, who, um, who was slain. And as many as obeyed him were scattered and brought to naught. After this, a man named Judas of Galilee, in the days of the taxing, um, drew away much people after him and also perished. And all, even as many as obey him, were dispersed. 
Let's talk a little bit for a moment about these two men. First of all, we need to see the backgrounds of whom Gamaliel was speaking about, these false messiahs. And this is what uh, Gamaliel is saying. Look at these guys were found to be frauds. But if notice what he says, continuing in Acts chapter five, before we give you the evidence of who these men were, he says, and now I say to you, refrain from these men and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest happily we be found fighting against God. Now, beloved saints, I want you to see what it was like in the sense of false messiahs very quickly. It is so important. Who is this? One that was spoken of that we see in uh, in Acts. First of all, we are going to see this one that was spoken of. Um, beloved saints was a man by the name of Thutius. And he actually led a rebellion against the Romans. And um, he appointed himself um, and he rebelled and really led a smaller insurrection. And he died in 46 AD. But we are also going to see this Judas, the Galilean, or this Judah of Galilee. And Judah, as you know, is a very popular Hebrew name. He began his revolt at the time of the taxation that took place at the birth of Christ. And he began a rebellion against Roman taxes. That is something you don't do, child. You don't rebel against Roman taxes. And that's exactly what he commanded all Jews to do. He appointed himself as a false Messiah and began to lead and also one by the name of Simon the Pharisee, who was among the Shamite Pharisees. That was a certain faction that was joined with the Zealots. Um, he, he led them in gross rebellion against the Romans. And as a matter of fact, because of the taxation against the Romans, he commanded that all Jews, he was forcing his philosophy upon all Jews, that whoever paid taxes to Rome, that means you could be a poor villager in Nazareth, or you could be a poor villager in Kafirnahum, or you could be a poor villager somewhere in Galilee. And if Judas the Galilean and his sect found out that you paid taxes to Rome, guess what would happen? Your houses would be burned and your cattle or your livestock would be stolen. And this was the sect by which Barabbas belonged to. So when we see that Barabbas was a thief, he belonged to the sect of Judas the Galilean. These who revolted against Rome, who actually began a Roman avenging. And this is why they began to send procurators into the land of, of um, first century Jewish Palestine. We need to understand it, that the Roman scourge began because of these false messiahs. And as the false messiahs, Messiahs began to proliferate one after another. 
And this is why they expected Jesus to lead some kind of rebellion. Because you see, the reason, one of the primary reasons why the temple was destroyed in the first place and why God allowed the temple to be destroyed was for the sins of what we called Sinat Chinam, which is baseless hatred. But if you remember, Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He said this in Matthew. Matthew chapter five. I want you to know, love your neighbor and hate your enemy is nowhere in the Bible. God commands his people to love your neighbor. And as a matter of fact, love your neighbor as yourself was one of the most weighty commandments. Jesus said it was the second weightiest commandment. And this is why beloved saints that we must really understand what's going on here. So now getting back to the persecution of Stephen, this leads us to the scattering of the believers because we, we may not know at a time when persecution begins in our own life, why God's allowing it. And you see, the Bible tells us that at the persecution, that at the persecution of Stephen, that the believers began to spread themselves throughout the Middle East. And the reason they were spreading themselves throughout the Middle East was really the work of God. Because had they stayed in Jerusalem, had they settled, their children would have grown up and they would have been older and they would have seen the burning of Zion. They would have seen the crushing of Jerusalem under the plundering scourge of the Romans. So Jesus allowed his Talmudim to be warned. But we also need to understand that the church at Antioch now is uh, built on this persecution. And this is where the population of the church at Antioch came from, from the scattering of the persecution at Stephen. Now let's look and see what actually happened. In Acts chapter 11, we are going to see that the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 11, the Bible says in verse 27, and in those days came prophets from Jerusalem to Antioch. And there stood up one of them named Agabus and signified by the spirit that there should be a great dearth throughout the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Now, beloved saints, I want you to see how very important this is, because if we go back to the signs before the destruction of the temple, Jesus is giving these very signs. Notice these are not only signs of his coming, the second coming, but they're signs before the destruction of the temple. The Bible says in verse nine, when you hear of wars and commotions, be not terrified for these things must first come to pass, but the end is not by and by. Then he said, nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and great earthquakes in divers places and famines and pestilence and fearful sights. There shall be from heaven. I want you to understand that these things did come to pass before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. I want you to understand that in the reign of Claudius Caesar alone, which was prophesied by the prophet Agabus that came to pass before the famine actually hit, that the Bible tells us that not only Josephus, but also Suetonius and some of the other um, 
Tactius and some of the other uh, Roman historians uh, tell us that there were four famines in the time of Claudius Caesar. Claudius Caesar reigned from 41 AD to 54 AD. He was right before Nero. So we need to understand that this places these famines right at the time the prophet Agabus came and to Jerusalem to give the warning to the church that there's going to be famines. Now, I want you to see not just the prophecy and notice that Jesus is saying this is a warning before the Romans come in and utterly destroy the temple. I want you to know that many of the believers are no longer living in Jerusalem because of the scattering of the saints at the persecution of Stephen. They are now living in Antioch. And I want you to see, beloved saints, what the Bible is showing us here. The Bible is telling us, watch how the believers respond. The Bible says, then the disciples... Every man, according to his several, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren which dwelt at Judea, which they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So I want you to understand before the famine hit, the church at Jerusalem was already protected. So Jesus is making provision. Provision for the saints that are going to be hit with this unbelievable famine that actually hit Jerusalem in the days of Claudius Caesar, which was before the crushing of Jerusalem under Titus, because Titus is going to crush Jerusalem in 70 AD. So this is taking place earlier. And Jesus said, the end is not yet. He said, great earthquakes shall be in diverse places and famine and pestilence. Notice how he says famine and pestilence. What caused the famines? Pestilence. There was a pestilence that broke out in the crops that affected Syria and affected a certain parts of Syria, not as far as Antioch, but uh, Syria that's near the borders of Israel and all of Jerusalem. And we have evidence from uh, Suetonius that even Queen Abilene, whose uh, kingdom was somewhere near Iraq, who was a convert to Judaism, sent ships filled with figs to feed the people in the Holy Land during this time of famines. So I want you to see, beloved saints, that these signs that Jesus is giving before the persecution, uh, before the crushing of Jerusalem. He is also saying that a sign before the crushing of Jerusalem is going to be that Jerusalem's going to be filled with persecution. This is why Jesus said, um, but before all these, they lo- shall lay hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and into the prisons. That's what Paul did um, before kings and rulers for my namesake. Settle it not before in your hearts what you are to say. And notice what Jesus is saying. You will be betrayed by parents, by brethren, by kinfolk, and some of you will be put to death. But in patience shall ye possess your souls. Notice verse 20. And when you see Jerusalem compassed with armies, 
know that the desolation is nigh. This is why when the 60,000 troops of Titus surrounded the city of Jerusalem, the Christians began to flee in numbers that were left in the city and they escaped the crushing of Jerusalem because Jesus gave warning. Why am I sharing all this? I'm sharing all this, beloved, because prophecy was handled appropriately. God wants you to know that there is an appropriate way that the church is to handle prophecy. And beloved, I want you to know that today God is preparing his church to receive such words. God is preparing his church in spiritual maturity. This is why so many of you have gone through the things that you've gone through in the past year and year and a half. This is why so many of you have gone through loss and you've gone through uh, worry and you've gone through a time of ruin. But the Lord wants you to know, even as we approach these 21 days of messianic miracles that shall begin at the end of June in the 26th of June till the 14th of July, these three weeks that were formerly known as weeks of mourning that are turned because of Messiah into weeks of miracles. God wants you to know that he is about to rebuild your ruins, that he is about to restore you, dear one, back. And he is about to release to you the anointing of rebuilding the ruins over your life. And I have a word for you. This is a word taken from the prophet Isaiah, the 40th chapter. And this is a word for the rebuilding of your ruins. The Bible says... Um, the Bible says, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people speak unto Jerusalem that her warfare is accomplished. God wants you to know your warfare is over. God wants you to know that there is a season of rest coming in your life. God wants you to know that this test was for your best. And God wants you to know that this is going to be a season of the days of your mourning being ended. This is why the Bible promises in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 20, the last line, speak comfortably to Jerusalem. And the Bible says, for the days of your mourning have been ended. Today, I'm claiming for every one of you that God is going to turn your situation around and that where there was devastation, there shall be supernatural divine restoration because Jesus is Lord. Father, today, in the mighty name of Jesus, we thank you for the anointing that you have given to your people today. We ask the release of the Holy Spirit over this. And we pray today that every person listening to this podcast will receive the anointing of the Spirit in their lives. Now, beloved saints, I invite you to go to My Day of Destiny and visit our website where you can download any of our podcasts. And you can also see how you can become a partner with this ministry around the world. You can sow your seed to this ministry and help with worldwide evangelism and help 
help feed children around the world by going to our website, not only My Day of Destiny, but also to our ministry website. That's breathofthespirit.org, breathofthespirit.org. And when you see the donate button, you can just push it and our PayPal platform will come up for you. Or if you prefer to text to give, you can do that by texting to give at 77977 and text it to Hesed, C-H-E-S-E-D. Love you and see you next time.